Welcome to Furberfield's cultural podcast, grounded in news from where we are. This ongoing series of podcasts are dedicated to the collaborative, imaginative fieldwork of artists, techies and activists, informing how we organise, imagine and build solidarity, good health and post-capitalist realities, working together and supporting others to do the same. In 2021, we celebrate 25 years of radical friendship at Ferberfield. We are revisiting past and current collaborators to discuss their fascinating ideas and what they're up to. These are critically in tune thinkers, working across different disciplines, practices, examining various aspects of the internet now and post-digital contexts. They are changing culture, their lives and the lives of their communities. We are interested in unearthing an ecological economy, relational understanding and lived lives alongside survival strategies, critical thinking and grassroots systems of peer and individual engagement as part of the art context. We are examining power and how lives get lived, on whose terms live in the proposition and what it means in the 21st century. For this episode, we have three excellent interviews, two by Filippo Florenzin with Angela Washko and Rosa Menkman, and my interview with Cornelia Solfrank. Cornelia Solfrank, since the mid-1990s, has investigated the worldwide communication networks and transferred artistic strategies of the classical avant-garde into the digital medium. Her special interest lies in experimenting with new models of authorship in continuing various forms of artistic appropriation and in deconstructing myths around geniality and originality. She was currently working as an associate researcher in the project Creating Commons. Angela Washko is an artist who creates new forums for discussions about feminism in spaces frequently hostile toward women, femmes and non-binary people. Washko's practice spans interventions in mainstream media, performance art, installation, digital art, writing, video and video games. Rosa Menkman's work focuses on noise, artefacts that result from accidents in both analogue and digital media, such as glitch and encoding and feedback artefacts. The resulting artefacts of these accidents can facilitate an important insight into the otherwise obscure alchemy of standardisation via resolutions. As usual, we have special guest appearances of experimental noisemakers and music, which includes AGF, poem producer and other audio-related surprises. First, we have Filippo interviewing Angela Washko. We've already heard a little bit about the context of discussion, so let's get going. Hello everybody, today I'm with a politically engaged feminist media artist and educator whose practice spans interventions in mainstream media, performance art, digital works, video art and video games. Welcome Angela Vasco, thank you for joining me today, how are you? Um, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic with a <laughs> newborn baby, so uh, I'm well slept and uh, very busy. <laughs> 
Your practice has often been about exploring the effects of specific design choices embedded in online platforms and digital interfaces on everyday social behavior and understanding of reality in oblique, surprising ways. Um, for example, you made art interventions in the online video game World of Warcraft, addressing the way that community of gamers treats women uh, back in 2012. Um, the game itself carries a misogynistic message with a strong focus on big, muscled men and half-naked female characters. Um, the concept of interacting with the community of a video game in a participatory way was a novelty, uh, both from an artistic practice point of view and, you know, and from a social studies perspective as well. Nine years are passed since then, so <laughs> I know. So could you tell me, you know, how you remember that experience? And, you know, given how fast digital culture changes, whether, you know, whether you think it would still have the same impact if it was reenacted um, today? Yeah, um, yeah, thank you for that that question and also pointing out that it started nine years ago <laughs> because it, <laughs> it certainly doesn't feel like I started that nine years ago, but I guess I did. Um, you know, at, at the time that I had started that work, I had very recently, um, before that project, I was making a lot of experimental video art focused on um, representations of women in, in games. And at the time that I had started that work, of course there are other artists working in that territory, but they weren't particularly visible, um, especially within, let's just say, like a kind of um, gallery fine art world, mm -hmm. um, much more sort of uh, in this kind of new media uh, space. Um, and even mm -hmm. then not necessarily very visible. Um, and it was, you know, Anita Sarkeesian started doing this project tropes versus women in games, like maybe a year after I had done, um, yeah, all this, this work called heroines with baggage. And mm -hmm. suddenly there was a larger, um, cultural conversation around, um, yeah, the, the representation of, of women in games, but yeah, so I had started thinking about that and, you know, I was a gamer and I, I played World of Warcraft. Um, I played it for <laughs> since it had come out in 2006, quite seriously at times. And something, you know, a, a big part of my experience was realizing that, um, you know, my my social experience in the game environment felt much more complicated than um, the men that I, I played with. You know, I was mm -hmm. dealing with constant, um, you know, as soon, basically as soon as somebody would find out that I was a, a, a real, <laughs> real self-identified woman, um, you know, the, the way that the predominantly, uh, male player base reacted to that ranged mm -hmm. from, um, just blatant harassment, um, doubt in my ability, uh, based on some idea that, you know, men are biologically inclined toward games, um, or, you know, um, yeah, just, uh, it really changed, um, mm -hmm. my, my relationship to the space. And so at the, at the time I had also been, you know, doing, um, 
performance art. I'd been uh, a part of an art collective and we were doing a lot of um, like public performances and physical spaces. And like, it occurred to me that I had been participating in this like sort of representative virtual um, public space. And why, why wasn't I compelled to apply some of the um, yeah, some of the kind of interventionist thinking that I'd been inspired by mm-hmm. in, in kind of, you know, artists working in physical space to this virtual environment. So, uh, you know, it, it ne- wasn't, didn't necessarily start as a quotes like art project. I just started mm-hmm. talking to players about <laughs> why, <laughs> why was it so normal to normalized in the space to harass women, to uh, demand sexual favors from them. Um, and you know, the project became, so it sort of solidified into a project by virtue of just committing to this practice of, of facilitating discussions about it and very, uh, visible discussions in Mm -hmm. highly populated areas. Um, yeah. And, and then sort of committing to it as like, a yeah, almost like a performance score or, a um, a, a kind of performance routine, um, that I was committed to to upkeeping for, mm-hmm. for several years. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, it, it was not the only artist that I had found out about that I, or there were a couple of artists, of course, that I found out about that had um, maybe somewhat similar approaches to other spaces, mm-hmm. um, like Joseph DeLapp's okay. um, Dead in Iraq, which is a little different yeah. because he just, I love that, that project, um, but he doesn't actually directly... Um, uh, converse or improvise with the community. It's sort of, he has a, mm-hmm. a, a process of, of, um, yeah, of, of yeah. You know, the, listing yeah. names yeah. in that space and so on. But, um, but yeah, there, it did feel like something that nobody else was, was doing. Um, mm-hmm. and it did feel exciting. I was a little bit, it was hard because I mean, for me, the primary audience for that work and the primary context for that work is world of Warcraft. Um, so yeah, translate, bring, taking that out of world of Warcraft and starting to share that with art audiences was really hard because (laughs) I'd be like, who's played world of Warcraft and like nobody would raise their hand and I'd be like, who knows what world of Warcraft is? (laughs) And you know, anyway, so that was, that was a challenge, but in terms of what, what would it be like today? I mean, I guess I'm, I'm proud of that work. I feel, I I certainly have like a number of like complex feelings about it and it grew over time as I became more critical of the project, but, um, I, I feel like it created a kind of almost like a prototype or like a, Mm -hmm. a structure that I've been happy to, you know, be like, copy this, (laughs) you know, (laughs) if you are in a space that's, you know, the project also became more intersectional over time and, and, you know, not just focused on the, yeah. uh, the oppression that women face in that environment, but also, um, yeah, the queer community and players of color. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, again, it, that's a very important project because it's not something made by someone who is not aware of, you know, of what online video games are and, you know, and right. how video games uh, work. You, as you said, you were very passionate about about it. You knew, ev- probably you knew ev- about every single, you know, social etiquette uh, rule. 
so you knew, you know, how to approach people. They knew how to approach you. Uh, one well, it's way, also you know, how you build trust in that yes. space, right? Like if you, you know, there's there are a lot of projects. I won't name them. I'm quite critical of mm-hmm. artists who see these spaces and they say, oh, that game, it's so fucked up. I'm, am I allowed to say that? Whatever. That, this, that game is so problematic. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do a screen <laughs> recording and I'm going to show the art world. And, you know, I'm going to capitalize on it because the art world has such a low bar and a low understanding of what goes on in, you know in what? game environments. <laughs> I think that's what you just described is so... I think I definitely know the project you're talking about. We are not <laughs> we, are, we are not going to to drop any names in this episode, maybe at a later stage. But yeah, that's that I definitely know what you mean. And that's exactly why I show your project next to other projects that you know that take uh, these online environments less seriously, basically. Um, speaking of more recent uh, projects, in 2020, you released a weaponizing courtship, um, what I would call your magnum opus. Um, it's a virtual performance for video that traces the history of how military goals and ideology have been historically incorporated into computer games since day one, if not even day zero. Your approach to such technology has always been informed by what feels like a very sincere passion for video games and its creative potential as medium. Um, could you tell me more about your interest in a field that you know wasn't that much explored by many artists, um, aside, as you said, a few pioneers? So basically, what led you to look at it from a critical point of view? Um, I suppose that at the time uh, you were an art student, maybe. Uh, how maybe you know maybe maybe you spent your days studying art, making <laughs> art, and you know, and when you were too tired to make art, you know, you just logged in World of Warcraft, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I mean, games were so important to me growing up. Um, you know, one of the criticisms that's been made of, uh, you know, particularly the Council on Gender Sensitivity and Behavioral Awareness in World of mm-hmm. Warcraft, which we were just talking about, is that, um, you know, that it's taking the fun out of games or games should be a space for fantasy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why are you taking it so seriously? <laughs> and like, you know, games have been historically like my escape, you know, coming mm-hmm. from a extremely rural and conservative um, upbringing um, w- you know, not, mm-hmm. not an ideal home situation, <laughs> uh, like escaping to my neighbor's houses to play mm-hmm. video games was so, so important and so formative. And I felt like some of the, the storytelling that I've been most invested in, in my <laughs> life were in these, you know, 60 to 80 hour long role-playing games mm-hmm. um, and, and early shooter games. And yeah, they were the the narratives, but also the experience of being kind of embedded and enacting um, these stories was, um, yeah, incredibly, incredibly formative for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with, with that, you know, as, <laughs> at, you know, as you get older and you go through art school and you start looking at things more critically, you get you know, wiser. There is a lot, yeah, there's a lot in there that you start realizing that you've internalized, just like we internalize 
all of the media we consume. And there's so much scholarship, obviously, around, um, yeah, the impact of, of film and television mm-hmm. on um, ideology. But and there is on games, too. But it's not I would say it's not as main mainstream and not mm-hmm. as as well known. And it's mm-hmm. more complicated um, in many ways. So, yeah, I in weaponizing courtship, I wanted to kind of one of the things that in more recent years I've been focused on in my relationship to games is who like looking at who's sort of accountable for um, different, different issues within the, within games themselves and the gaming industry. And I Mm -hmm. think when I was working on the council, I was thinking about how the, the community, um, yeah, it was creating this sort of toxic environment for marginalized people. Um, but the more and more I did that project, I I started thinking about the accountability of the developers for creating a space that had become as, um, yeah, as, as oppressive as it was for um, mm-hmm. players who didn't make up what maybe the developers might call like their target audience or the, or the universal audience for mm-hmm. games, which mm-hmm. at that time was imagined to be young, straight white men. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I started thinking more about how, how game developers could shift, shift just the community guidelines for participating, change their, um, be- become more intentional about the social mm. environments that they make and even through d- different design um, decisions as well. So weaponizing consent, I've been working at this very like very <laughs> particular intersection of games, gaming communities, uh, the manosphere online, men's rights activism, um, and the seduction community and finding that, video games are and video game rhetoric is very present within the manosphere and the male seduction community. Mm-hmm. And as I go, went further in, you know, analyzing the, the tactics of those communities, there's so, so much of the, um, yeah, the language that they use, mm-hmm. um, is that this weird uh, intersection of of like military lingo and gaming lingo? Yeah, you have so, your objectives, you have skills, you have things to uh, upgrade. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. Yeah, and the and the term like using you know when you're in they use this term called when you're in the field, which mm. means you're basically you're out and about and you're like going to practice your particular pickup art on women. You look, you scan the room and you look for your target mm-hmm. and then you lock in on your target. And then there's all this strategy around how you, you know, yeah. win over and seduce this target. Um, so yeah, that, that's how I sort of ended up um, really wanting to do a deep dive into um, the relationship between um, mil- the you know military technology, mm-hmm. um, gaming technology, and gaming com- communities, especially the <laughs> the you know the the mil- the U.S. military and it's like prolific esports programs and the way that they use games as a kind of um, yeah well, marketing yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then looking at how, um, 
yeah, the seduction community is uh, employing some of that as well. Mm -hmm. And then with the the ending of the work, focusing on a terrible game called Super Seducer. You recently worked on a workhorse queen, uh, a documentary film about a drag queen and her aspirations in the entertainment business. I've read in other interviews that you were initially intrigued by the politically subserved... Oh my gosh, let me say that again. I've read... (laughs) Sorry. I've read in other interviews that you were initially intrigued by the politically subversive energy of her persona, a 1960s housewife inspired by her mother. I wonder if you could elaborate on this aspect, the, the role played by mainstream media in the shaping of our intimate memories and the unpredictable ways it can be used to make creative things to remember and celebrate um, who we care about. I, you know, I've, <laughs> it was coming clear from this podcast, but uh, I have spent a lot of time, you know, as a, as a woman in spaces that are, that are pretty explicitly hostile toward women, whether mm-hmm. that's, um, yeah, some of these uh, more transparently misogynistic game communities, um, the gaming industry itself, um, then diving into the the manosphere and men's rights activists and pickup artists, which mm-hmm. <laughs> is much more explicit in its uh, sort of anti-feminist uh, approach. And, you know, after years of doing that, at a certain point, I was like, I can keep going down this rabbit hole. And I feel like I've done a lot for, <laughs> for this, uh, you know, as a, as a artist and a, um, yeah, politically engaged artist. And I, you know, I was like, I think I want to take a moment and um, invest in something I'm really excited about and <laughs> something that I, you know, setting and putting something out into the world um, that, yeah, really highlighted maybe a, a, a template or prototype of, of someone worth investigating mm-hmm. further into who yes. had maybe a, a I would say maybe a somewhat negative experience um, in a kind of mainstream media context mm-hmm. and so I <laughs> I had around the the time of the 2016 election of Donald Trump I had become I, I had already been watching RuPaul's Drag Race since it came out but at that point I was watching it every day, every day for a year. And I, I, yeah, I was really struck by this performer who went home very early on season seven named Mm -hmm. Mrs. Kasha Davis, who, like you said, had this very, very specific sort of sixties housewife persona. And, you know, on, on paper, you know, six, Angela's making a project about a sixties housewife, (laughs) how, how radical, Um, you know, what was important to me was that this was someone who was wanted to create an homage to the domestic labor that women were systemically forced to do for so long and was kind of, this this character of Mrs. Kasha Davis is an homage to his mother it's an homage to yeah this sort of under under celebrated domestic labor and Mm -hmm. you know it just 
Mrs. Kasha Davis performs that effortlessly. It's not like she has a bio that says, I'm a political artist making mm-hmm. political work. She's just like, this is just, this is something I deeply care about. And like, these are the women that were so important to me who mm-hmm. lifted me up and made me feel safe. And I just want to to celebrate them and celebrate the, um, try to in some way honor their, their struggles. And Mm -hmm. I just loved that. And I just thought, you know, how, what it's, it's such a complicated intersection of things. It's, you know, it's drag performance, Mm -hmm. which, you know, in itself on, on mainstream television is fairly subversive, (laughs) but it's also packaged within this like reality television landscape. So that sort of undermines in many ways, some of the opportunities for Mm -hmm. um, telling Mrs. Kasha Davis's more complicated story. So yeah, I, I, it was an opportunity. I, I pursued <laughs> doing a documentary film. I've never made a documentary film before, but I was like, this is it. This is the one I'm going to do. <laughs> I want to spend the next several years uh, with, with Mrs. Kasha Davis, seeing what her Rochester drag community is like, mm-hmm. going on tour with her when she gets the opportunity to go on tour because of reality television and seeing how also how hard it is for Ed, the the person behind the persona, to to become a full time artist at the age of you know forty seven when mm-hmm. I started filming him, he just turned fifty uh, yesterday actually. <laughs> um, but yeah, how someone who is a you know suburban telemarketer because of reality television can have this totally different life. And yeah, I just, I wanted to just dive into the complexity of that in a way that I feel like nobody else, no other artist has really focused on. And I think Mm -hmm. in all of my work, I'm interested in how to, how to say, how to kind of, how to undermine the art world's, um, yeah, sort of, judgmental relationship Mm. to like quotes, low culture. Yes. And just like go in with complexity and come out with something that's accessible. System, 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 death and life. System, 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 the surgeon's knife. System, 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 hacking at the cord. System, 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 a child is born. Poor little fucker, poor little kid, never asked for life, no, she never did. Poor little baby, poor little mite, crying out for food as her parents fight. Crying out for food as her parents fight. System, 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 send him to school. System, 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 force him to crawl. System, 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 teach him how to cheat. System, 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 kick him off his feet. Poor little schoolboy, poor little lad, they'll pat him if he's good and I'll beat him if he's bad. Poor little kid, poor little chap, they'll force feed his mind with their useless crap. Force feed his mind with their useless crap. System, 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 they'll teach her how to cook. System, 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 they'll teach her how to look. System, 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 they'll teach her all the tricks. 
system, system, system. Create another victim for their greasy pricks. Poor little girly, poor little wench. Another little object to prod and pinch. Poor little sweetie, poor little Billy. They'll fuck her mind so they can fuck her silly. Fuck her mind so they can fuck her silly. System, 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 he's grown to be a man. System, 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 he's been taught to fit the plan. System, 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 40 years of jobs. System, 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 pushing little buttons, pulling little knobs. Poor little worker, poor little surf, working like a mule for half of what he's worth. Poor little grafter, poor little gent, working for the cash that he's already spent. Working for the cash that he's already spent. He's selling his life. She's his loyal wife. Timid as a mouse. She's got her little house. He's got his little car. They'll share the cocktail bar. She likes to cook his meals. You know something that appeals. Sometimes he works late. So it's up for us to wait. But she doesn't really mind. Cause he's getting overtime. He puts a bit away. Just for a rainy day. Cause every little counts. When the cost of living mounts. Lottery each week. Hoping for that lucky break. They would take a trip abroad. Do the things they can't afford. She'd like to have a fur. He'd like a bigger car. They could buy a bungalow. But with furniture for show. He might think of leaving work. But he wouldn't want a shirt. He would much prefer to stay. Get an honest day's pay. He's got a life work ahead. There's no rest for the dead. She's trying to make it. Nice. He said thank you once or twice. System, 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 deprived of any hope. System, 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 taught they couldn't cope. System, 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 slaves right from the start. System, 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 till death do them part. Poor little fuckers, what a sorry pair. Had their lives stolen, but they didn't really care. Poor little darlings, just your ordinary folks, victims of the system and its cruel jokes. Victims of the system and its cruel jokes The couple views the wreckage And dreams of home sweet home They'd almost paid their mortgage When the system dropped its bomb That was Systematic Death by Jeffrey Lewis from the album 12 Croissants on Rough Trade Records, released in 2007. In a review about the album in The Guardian, Dorian Linsky says, Equipped with a taste for quixotic endeavours and the ability to wrangle an improbable number of words into a melody, New Yorker Jeffrey Lewis is possibly the only musician on the planet to devote a whole album to the oeuvre of art punk provocateurs crass. It's no mean feat to transform such an abrasive harangues into lush, tuneful folk, rapping where next Columbus's references to Mussolini and Marx in dreamy strings and remembering do they owe us a living as a coffeehouse duet without diffusing their righteous anger. He then says the language is inescapably rooted in the days when Thatcher and Reagan bestrode the Atlantic. Some listeners may tire of being addressed as anesthetized drones under the capitalist yoke, but Crassie's intelligent and indignant screeds could not hope for more of a sympathetic translator. Next, I'm interviewing Cornelia Selfrank about the book Aesthetics of the Commons, which was published in April earlier this year. It was co-edited between Cornelia Selfrank, Felix Dorder and Shusha Neiderberger. Aesthetics of the Commons examines a series of artistic and cultural projects drawn from what can loosely be called the post-digital 
that take up this challenge in different ways. What unites them, however, is that they all have a double caretake. They are art in the sense that they place themselves in relation to Western cultural art systems, developing discursive and aesthetic positions, but at the same time, they are operational in that they create recursive environments and freely available resources whose uses exceed these systems. The first aspect raises questions about the kind of aesthetics that are being embodied. The second creates a relation to the larger concept of the commons. Anyway, here we go. The interview starts now. Hello, Cornelia. It's great to have you on podcast for this interview. Yeah, hello. Hi. Hi, Mark. <laughs> great to be here. Thanks a lot for the invitation. Uh, so to start with, what is the Aesthetics of the Commons about? The Aesthetics of the Commons, first of all, is a book that has been published in January in 2021. And at its core, um, it's about our projects that create or maintain digital commons. So it has this very specific focus. It's not about commons in general. We have seen other books on, on art and commons recently. It also is not on urban commons. There's a lot of stuff going on in the field of urban commons. But we were specifically interested in digital commons. And within that realm of digital commons, which of course in its in itself is, is rather wide, we are we were basically interested in projects that were run and initiated by artists. The book discusses that it came about as part of an experimental research project. Could you tell us what this experimental research project in, entailed? Mm -hmm. Well, experimental research project is a bit of a, let's say, how, how do we call it? Maybe an application language also, because it was, it was an actual research project that was funded by the Swiss National Fund. Um, for research and of course because it's a it was a project that that has not a classical or easily describable methodology which you have to have if you apply for funding we called it experimental which means kind of a mix of different methods from social sciences from media studies uh, but mainly also from uh, artistic research and what was specific about the methodology was that we did not explore a theme to start with and then artists who were involved produced projects, which is a very common way of, of doing artistic research projects. But our starting point were really certain projects and we looked at already existing projects together with the artists who have made, who have done, who are running this project in order to create or to, yeah, through our discourse, create a sort of a, a, a context, not not a theory as such, but we also invited, so on, the, on one way we, in, uh, we invited the artists who run the project, but also theoreticians from various disciplines to look together with us at this project. And we were all of us discussing and creating a context because we thought this is a very specific way of working in the art field, in the field of digital commons, which is worthwhile studying in more detail. What are the key questions and elements being examined in the publication or what, what kind of questions, elements kind of appeared uh, as the publication kind of uh, went through its progress? Mm, I'm happy to answer these, but I think in order to 
to uh, to to make them more meaningful, these questions, I would like to describe a little bit what these projects had in common, if that's okay. Uh, so we 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 found um, you know looking for for the project of digital commons in the art field, we we actually selected sixteen projects, and as you know, further field was one of the projects. And um, to look at them, they were all you know there were some similarities. We did hesitate to to put them in categories for various reasons. But what they all had in common is that they, in one way or another, provide or produce shared and free resources. That means resources that can be used by anyone without referencing to this project. And this is particularly relevant in our context because there's a lot of participatory projects, for example, where the artists set up an environment and, and they invite people to come in and do something, but nothing happens within this participatory art project that does not really refer back to the artists who created it or to the to the specific project. So in the projects that we selected, the resources that are being produced or being made available are much more independent from the actual projects or the people who provided. The other aspect so we have this aspect of of actually having a real functionality by providing these resources. The other commonality with, between these projects um, is, and that is where the artistic project, artistic aspect comes in, that they do not just produce the resources, but they also produce discourses and certain aesthetics. And so they are also operating, uh, you could say, on a symbolical level. So they do both, you know, they, 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 prov they have a functionality, which is totally independent from their status as an art project. At the same time, they, they, they uh, they unfold a certain um, discursive and symbolic value within an artistic context, which which goes way beyond what, for example, act. so um, that is these two characteristics that come together in each of these projects in different ways, and that's what they ha have all in common. So uh, the questions are somehow related to to these different aspects. For example, the resources they produce, they can be infrastructures or they create spaces, they can be digital spaces or physical spaces where communication can happen, where people can relate to each other, where encounters can happen. And so one of the questions that was interesting for us was, for example, how can you f new forms of organization and collaboration bring forth different kinds of cultural works and social relations? Meaning, how how do these projects function, actually, not only in what they provide, but also what they produce by operating in different ways? Another aspect that is always interesting in the in relation to the commons, because commons has a lot to do with property, with property relation, uh, with the opposite of uh, individual or private property. And so uh, we were, we also transferred this question of property onto or into these projects and asking, for example, what are the property relations, if there are any, or are there any new uh, forms of property relations within this project emerging? Another question is, as I already said, there is a huge field of digital commons. 
which usually is has a lot to do, you know, with free software activities, with activists in these fields, hackers. And so, of course, if we selected only art project, that the, the question uh, th that brings that with it is really what can or how can artistic practices contribute to the further development of as the commons, as the digital commons, as inclusive, diverse and, and democratic forms of organization, especially in this field of the digital commons. So uh, that what can artists basically add to what is already there? Can they add something else, something new, which activists, for example, can't? So this is, of course, a, a question that is necessary when we select artists-only projects and so why do we do that? Can they do something specific which others can't do? The, the last question basically has again to do with the, with the art field in which we are operating or which we are interested in, where we basically turn around the question of what can artists contribute to the digital commons and we turn it around and say what can these ideas that come from the digital commons do within the art world how can they influence the art world how can they inspire new ways of thinking about art practicing art collaborating in art and all these things so uh, with that how can art develop through this influence and what new ways of aesthetics and artistic practices can evolve in that field. The Halusa Nation. The human beings. The people. See the spiritual in the natural. Through sense and feeling. Everything is related. All the things of earth and in the sky have spirit. Everything is sacred. Confronted by the alien nation, the subjects and the citizens see the material religions through trauma and numb. Nothing is related. All the things of the earth and in the sky have energy to be exploited. Even themselves, mining their spirits into souls sold, into nothing is sacred. Not even their self. The Ally Nation. Alia Nation. track was called Alienation by a tribe called Red, featuring artists John Trudell, Lido Pamienta, Northern Voice 
and the brilliant Tanya Tagag. If you have not already listened to Tanya Tagag, I highly recommend listening to her. She has also been doing great work with Buffy St. Marie, which I will play another time. I also love Buffy St. Marie, who my mum used to play when I was a young kid. Next up, we'll have Filippo interviewing Rosa Menkman about noise artifacts, accidents as in glitch and encoding, and feedback and important insights into the otherwise obscure alchemy of standardization via resolutions. Hello, everybody. Today I'm with an artist, educator, and quote unquote researcher of resolutions whose work focuses on noise artifacts to find new ways to understand, use, and perceive our technologies. She once stated that the authenticity of an artwork has much more to do with the personal touch of the artist than with the knowledge of technology in general. Welcome, Rosa Mankman. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? Hey, Filippo. I'm okay. COVID times, so I'm COVID okay. (laughs) (laughs) Your approach to digital artifacts seems closer to the critical understanding of codes of traditional net art than most of contemporary trends in digital art. Your book, The Glitch Momentum, was published in 2011, when most of the marketing-driven features of of current digital culture were becoming more and more apparent to everyone. In your experience as educator and artist, do you feel that critical approach to digital tools is still relevant in nowadays discussions surrounding new media art? That is such a rich question. You know, you go way way back to the net art times, just like the early 90s. But I think there is some relevance to that because, you know, I'm from Amsterdam um, where Geert Lovink, uh, together with Pit Schultz, they started NetTime and uh, NetTime was a big platform for mm-hmm. um, also for net art, not, not just the only platform. And you had artists like um, Ulia Ulialina for Kojic mm-hmm. or um, Jody.org, you know. They were very mm-hmm, big mm-hmm. net artists and they I see them as legacy artists somehow. I wouldn't say that my practice is in any way net art, but definitely these are the people that I've learned from. So I think that plus uh, also in Amsterdam, the next five minutes hosting uh, a symposium or a tactical media event in which uh, Geert also explained the term tactical media from an art perspective i think Mm -hmm. it's kind of like you know there's this energy or there used to be that energy in amsterdam that i think really influenced me that i've learned from that's very interesting especially because you know when we talk about digital art it always feels like that there are no geographical boundaries isn't it it's like i don't know an artist working in tokyo can you know can can influence in the same way someone in New York and in Rome. So I think it's very interesting, this local aspect um, of your um, research, at least, you know, the big, I suppose, at least in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. But I think just to come back to your question, though, I just want to say something about tactical ma- mm-hmm. media and uh, how that is still relevant, because I do believe it's super relevant still. Um, in 2017, actually, mm-hmm. Michael Dieter reformulated uh, and revisited tactical media. And there was also this exhibition about tactical media that was called um, How Much of This is Fiction? It was by Anna Decker and David Garcia, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
in general, there is a resurgence or a revisiting of the term. But then also I was thinking the other day about GameStop and that kind of being like the populist form of a tactical media intervention, right? So I think it's totally like there, right there. And it's very important also to me thinking back about um, maybe the practice of everyday life. Um, Yeah, so yes. Um, speaking of more recent works, um, White Out of 2020, um, in that work, you explore the condition of interacting within an environment lacking of, ref- of references and instructions. The inspiration behind it is a number of experiences you had in extreme cold areas of the world. The work is a video showing the increasing loss of sensations and inability to detect spatial and psychological references. In the final moments, the all gray environment overwhelms the protagonist feeling very senses. Can you tell me more about the creative process that led you to make it? Um, I see it as a sort of continuation of your research in noise aesthetics, in that um, you explore the potential of human senses Mm. when there are not clear instructions to follow um, anymore. What do you think? Mm. Yeah, um, a whiteout, the video that is online, is a render of a performative lecture I gave for the Transmediale Mm -hmm. in 2020. And um, it's a performative lecture that I wrote actually for a book uh, that is called Axis, which was a collaboration with Mario de Vega. And yeah, the, the main line of that performative lecture is this walk I did during an actual whiteout. I was scaling a mountain. But then the, the work is kind of like pierced with, because I'm so oversaturated during that whiteout, oversaturated mm-hmm. by nothing it's like covid actually you feel all the time totally mm-hmm. tired and oversaturated but there's actually nothing changing it's also this boredom or something mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's pierced with this like memories of the past that come to you while you you're you have no references around you and so there are three actually i think um one of them is um my research at CERN, uh, Impossible Images, but then there's also mm-hmm. this reference back to um, a trip I took uh, in California. Um, I found mm-hmm. I visited a concentrated solar farm, and that's where I first, I think this is the real introduction to light for me. Like, we're living and we're sensing light all the time, right? But the actual first time I saw light, like white light, bright light, the mm-hmm. power of light, I think that's something that, not everyone ever experiences, but in a concentrated solar farm, it's where all the sun points at one, is directed to one part, and it's an incredible experience. And then there's also my trip to uh, Antarctica, which was uh, on the Aquiles, which is a boat from the Chilean army. So I was on the boat of the army. I was the only non-Spanish speaking person while crossing the drake which is this passage right between chile and antarctica and it's like the roughest sea so there was all these like references to oversaturated experiences Mm -hmm. yet Mm -hmm. a problem of how to tell that story and so yeah how can you make a story about feeling oversaturated um yet not a boring story somehow you know, or like a story with a line still. And yeah, I did that by by kind of 
connecting these three different lines um, and through this axis of a whiteout. And I think noise and noise artifacts are a very instrumental way there because they kind of like play also with these different levels and sub-levels of structure. So You recently published Beyond Resolution, um, a book about the effects of standardized compromises and regulated levels. If we look at the history of image making and image processing, we see that um, artists and their clients developed more and more strategies to systemize colors and formats. Uh, in fact, you know, affecting our perception of not only their works, but the real world um, as well. Can you please tell me more about this book? Yeah, Resolution Studies, or uh, Beyond Resolution, which is about resolution studies, is like a research I started already five years, maybe six years now ago. It was mm -hmm. first commissioned by the Institute of Network Cultures, um, but it was actually dropped due, due to some bureaucratic bullshit. So it became really an independent labor of love, in which I also could take my own freedoms, right? So I could really choose mm -hmm. uh, how I wanted to kind of organize this research and not necessarily do that via an institutional format. So... Yeah, resolution studies, I kind of cut it up in five parts. So there is mm -hmm. habit, material, genealogy, institutions, and scale. And those are like five kind of entry points through which I am describing and researching resolutions. And then I'm at the same time kind of writing and researching things and presenting the artworks that came out of that research. So one of those things is Behind White Shadows, and that is actually the chapter you refer, refer to when you're talking about um, color test cards, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, so these are kind of uh, a racist technology, I would say, because they're very much focused on white people and making technology work around white skin and not other types mm -hmm. of skin. And so what I do is I describe the genealogy of those test cards from a century ago to now. And uh, I also made some work about that of the same name. Yeah, I, I have to say, I read, I read the book and I found it very, very interesting. And it, it's very fascinating to see, um, you know, how your research um, uh, developed over the years. Another recent project of yours is the blob of im slash possible images, <laughs> um, a collection that explores the concept of perception, uh, culturally influenced experience of the world and what lies behind, our, beyond our own senses. Um, I'm very curious about this project and I wonder if you could elaborate on its conception and future development. Yeah, I mean, the, the con concept of impossible like some things should not be spoken out outside of the mm -hmm. internet right so im slash possible mm -hmm. can just be impossible <laughs> um the, the concept came from my residency at cern so when i was there in 2019 uh, i came with a concept called shadow knowledge and um i i i had this idea to research skill so what does it mean when something exists out of, outside of the dimensions and system units of scale. 
if something is um, indistinguishable from its background environment, we cannot really perceive it. We need to find means to perceive it. Because mm -hmm. when it remains invisible or intangible, we cannot actually understand it. And it be becomes very un unknowable. That's uh, mm -hmm. also a reference to hyperobjects from um, Graham Harmon, actually. But when I came with this kind of idea and I tried to explain that to the scientists at CERN, they didn't get it. Like, it was way too poetic. <laughs> so I needed to reformulate my research for a scientific institution. And from that, I actually created just one simple research sentence that I could put forward to every scientist I met. And so... That was the sentence. Um, imagine you could obtain an impossible image of any object or phenomenon that you think is important with no limits to spatial, temporal, energy, signal to noise or cost resolutions. What image would you create? And so I got a lot of answers and sometimes very, very beautiful ones. I think I have about <laughs> 40 or 50 answers of impossible images put forward by scientists. And um, in the blob of impossible images, I'm kind of showing these concepts, just a few ones that were very imaginative to me that sparked kind of this thinking of what is possible what, and what is impossible. And that's actually kind of a reference also to what resolutions are, right? Because resolutions are mm -hmm. not just ways to solve things, but they're, they're at the same time also compromises of how not to solve or make things visible or sensible. In, at the same time. Yeah. So they're kind of exclusive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they work like translation, isn't it, between a language and another. Yeah. I mean, in order to, you, you always have to uh, specify what is, you know, what is worth to be communicated, I suppose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something, of course, uh, gets lost in translation, I suppose. Absolutely. But then at the same time, what we're no longer thinking through or especially not people just using consumer electronics or technologies, mm -hmm. um, is that we're no longer trained to actually consider what is being compromised. And so yes. in this blob, it's kind of a, a latent space. It's like this space where you can still find the liminalities or the other sides of what could also be possible or what could conceptually be possible. And so mm -hmm. I'm trying to kind of expand this space of the senses by showing where resolutions and the setting of affordances kind of um, cut away particular possibility, possibilities, but that we could consider also to be possible, as, especially conceptually, but also maybe in the future or in the past. most is becoming a poet locking myself in the room gazing at the sea and forgetting and forgetting I fear and forgetting I fear that the stitches of my veins might heal and instead of having blur memories about TV news my views I take to scribbling papers and selling my views I fear 
that those who stepped over us might accept me so that they can use me. I fear that my screams might become a murmur and thus I will be trapped so that to serve putting my people to sleep. I fear might learn to use meter and rhyme and thus I will be trapped within them longing for my verses to become popular an easy prey I fear that I might buy binoculars in order to bring closer the sabotage actions in which I won't be participating I fear getting tired, an easy prey for priests and academics, and to turn into a sissy. They have their ways. They can utilize a routine in which you get used to. They have turned us into dogs. They see to us being ashamed for not working. They see to us being proud for being unemployed. That's how it is. Keen psychiatrists and lousy policemen are waiting for us in the corner. Marx. I'm afraid of him. I'm afraid of him. My mind walks past him as well. Those bastards, they are to blame. I cannot forget. Even finished his writing. Maybe, hey, maybe some other day. That track is called Katerina Gogu, 1940 to 1993, from the album Arachna Sounds by AGF, who is also known as Poem Producer. The whole album consists of AGF collaborating with great women. Katerina Gugau was known as the anarchist poetess of Exarchaea in Greece. Also, if you wish to know more about uh, Gugau, visit libcom.org, where there is an in-depth biography about her and more. If you wish to get more music uh, by AGF, please visit Bandcamp. There is an excellent collection of her work there. And now, for the second part of my interview with Camellia Soulfrank. So, so in relation to care and infrastructure and called co uh, Common in the Commons revisiting the role of art in times of crisis. And Dragona highlights four different artistic initiatives in different parts of the world. And mm -hmm. uh, yes, and I was wondering whether you can tell us who and or what these initiatives are and a summary of the active points being presented in a kind of 
doesn't have to be that specific, but the, uh, the where we can get the spirit of the context. Well, it's of course difficult because I, I'm I'm going to rephrase Daphne's text, and of course she knows much better about these projects. <laughs> I only uh, know uh, about these projects through reading her text, uh, except except of one. But um, I can try my best. <laughs> Maybe um, she can add something later. So uh, what I found interesting about this text that she also um, um, that she also looked into artistic practices and she selected additional projects to so the one that we have selected, which we liked very much, and also projects from different parts of the world, which we were not really able to do because our re restricted budget. You know, we, we we realized when we started, okay, it's very limited uh, what we can have a look at and what what we can cover, and it was very clear that. Uh, especially uh, a lot of initiatives uh, from different parts of the world who use or for whom a digital commons play a different role than for us, for example, and who combine it with different other traditional forms of knowledge and so on and so forth. So that was missing in our research project. This was very clear. So we were particularly happy that through Daphne, these, uh, uh, some of these uh, pr projects, their ideas uh, became represented. And uh, what's very important for me also is what she writes in, at the beginning, that, she were, that she's not at all interested in individual artworks. And that is something that I find more and more, you know, that I get more and more bored by individual artworks and I get more and more interested in projects that are initiated and run by artists, but that operate in a much more complex way, you know, collaborate, build structures to a certain degree are totally invisible. At the same time, they produce a lot, you know, and to kind of shift the mindset of, uh, you know, how we look at art from, from this totally Western, you know, uh, art historical perspective of defining art through the name of the author and the original artwork. <laughs> this, is, this is something I'm really not very much interested in anymore. This is also what she writes in, in, in her introduction, and that also leads her to the selection of this project what what these um, and she talks when she talks about the project she she introduces this term of um, effective infrastructures which she finds um, very helpful I think it's from uh, from uh, a theoretician called Berland maybe something I did not mention yet is that the book aesthetics of the Commons is open access so everyone can download it and so all the people who listen to, to this podcast are invited to uh, to to have a look at the book themselves because there's all all the correct references and um, um, that I, I cannot mention here. So uh, the term effective infrastructures is important and for her also in the introduction she kind of connects um, the notion of the commons with uh, with with an, with a term or the concept of the crisis and she said we are in a constant crisis and uh, and our various crises in which we are as humankind are not no longer kind of limited uh, crises that end but it, they have been kind of naturalized so we are like in a permanent crisis and uh, on on very different levels you know economic environmental health and so on and she connects this to the commons as a way uh, to cope with crisis, uh, which is not an official program, how you do things, but as a more kind of uh, 
you know, hidden layer, you know, of 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 effective in an, that people uh, connect in effective ways to make sure that that there are other people with the same spirit, encourage each other, help each other, uh, share knowledge with each other, share actually really also share all kind of resources with each other. So it's a kind of an effective uh, support infrastructure, I would call it. You know, so that is uh, in the uh, that is what what she what she says in the introduction and the spaces that she um, that she selected for all our spaces in the first place of different sort it's four different projects the first is Platohedro which is in Colombia in Medellin the second is Constant you know a friendly project it's a media initiative or an artist run media feminist media center uh, the third is in Palestine in Ramallah Sakia and the fourth is again one which is closer to where we are pirate care it's called pirate care which does not have an actual location so it's not located in a specific country or place but it's a purely online project so we have these different uh, projects and maybe with Platohedro uh, it might be of interest that not so long ago maybe four weeks ago I did an interview with Penny Travlu, who is the researcher to which also Daphne refers in her text, because Daphne also did not really go to Platohedro to Colombia to do research and work with Platohedro, but it was actually Penny Travlu who did that, and she was kind of missing in our research project. So I suggested to her said, please, uh, this is really, your, your work is so important and so relevant in our context. Please, let's do this interview. So I added this interview. It's also on the Creating Commons website, and maybe you can just link it. So people who want to know more about Plato Hetero can, uh, can, can go to this interview with uh, Penny and get uh, first hand because it's for them, but at the same time, they combine it with with the traditional uh, local knowledge uh, of uh, Buen Vivir and, and Buen Conocer, which is this traditional knowledge that basically tries to develop ways of a good life and a good way of knowing for everyone. And good life has nothing to do with luxury or anything, but really good in the sense of healthy and, you know, happy. <laughs> And uh, it's very impressive, I think. And I was a bit skeptical, you know, because there is this also this sort of, I don't know if you want to call it a fashion, you know, a lot of romanticism about indigenous knowledge and all of that. And I also asked Penny, how can this, how can this sort of knowledge be really relevant to us, you know? living in urban context in big cities in the Western world, what can we learn from that? But it's really interesting because it is so basic and so uh, it's so basic knowledge that it's basically yeah, relevant to, to, to everyone. You know, you can learn so much. And so it was quite interesting, interesting and it, 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 it was a lot of food for thought also for me, you know, because I was thinking about, my own tradition, my own cultural heritage, and where is this? How do I refer to this? Is there any sort of knowledge that I can, you know, that helps me to create a good life or a good way of knowing? And so it triggered a lot of questions. So it's, it's uh, really nice. Um, the Constant, the second project, 
uh, as I said, it's more kind of um, rooted in our, you know, Western digital culture, internet culture. It's um, it's a collective that is around also for more than 20 years, which has evolved a bit and gone through different phases. But basically, uh, I think one of the basic principles for them is really to also apply feminist thinking to their ways of dealing with technology, uh, which is very relevant to me because I think uh, there is no way of dealing uh, in an interesting way with technology that is not inspired by feminist thinking. <laughs> this is my total conviction, you know. So, and that has been part of the DNA of um, of Constant from the beginning. So it has nothing to do or not so much to do about, you know, men and women, but it's the way of how they operate because it's a mixed group. It's different people with different disciplines, but um, it's written basically in, in in their mode of operating that they are very much influenced by by feminist thinking, which is which is great, of course. And from there, it leads to a lot of different questions of question of tools is, for example, very important for them. Uh, digital tools. What tools do you use to produce your work, your artwork, or if you're a graphic designer? Uh, your, your graphic design work. So this whole research project on Libre Graphics has come out of that, which is a group of graphic designers who only use open source software and tools for making graphic design. And if you if you know about graphic design, you know that there is basically one monopoly who controls the whole market of software. And if you go outside of this, you know, there's desert, there's nothing happening. And it's very difficult to be professional in this field and to be compatible and to connect to all these different standards that are necessary if you're not using this uh, this monopoly software. So this is just one example. They do a lot of different research projects. And while in the beginning they have done more workshops and also events, uh, exhibition, things like that, uh, uh, they are actually doing mainly a research projects in the different groups at the moment. So that is Constant. The, the third is also a project that I do not personally know, so I, I really don't know much about it. I know it's uh, based in Ramallah in Palestine, and I think we all know um, more or less what the situation is, how difficult it is. It has a lot to do um with uh with struggles about land around land who can who who can be on the land not to speak of own the land who can be on the land who can do what on the land uh for example build or not build a house and things like that different uh, uh restrictions in different areas and this project that has also uh, been initiated by an artist and an architect what they are doing is that they are trying to combine or to to do in this specific situation to combine artistic means with 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 science and especially with agriculture so that's how they connect or how they bring in the notion of the land and how they how they do agriculture and for them uh, permaculture is an important concept that they are working with yeah so that was the Sakia and Ramallah, and the fourth project um, I think um, we didn't talk about yet is the Pirate Care Project, which is um, 
a project that emerged in the last, I don't know, two, three years. And it, uh, there's also some of our friends, Marcel Mars and Tom, Tommy Medak in the project that we know from uh, memoryoftheworld.org, you know, one of the pirate libraries. So a special um, project we also worked with in creating comments. But they, um, they kind of joined forces with another researcher, Valeria Graziano, uh, who does not come from like this technical and information-oriented uh, uh, resource thinking about resources, but from different field, more socially related or healthcare related. So they combine this their interest in expanding the notion of what care is from. Uh, from the original field, of course, of you know where where we think about social relations, um, healthcare, and things like that, uh, but bring it to think it together with with caring about infrastructure, with caring about information resources, and things like that. And so that is quite a, quite a, a, a jump, I think, quite a leap that they made to combine it together, uh, and it's only possible because they. I think they have a very uh, wide and philosophical approach to the notion of care, and that is what they write about and what they uh, collect material on in their uh, in their syllabus. Uh, you know, they have this collection of learning materials on their website. As I said in the beginning, it's only it's not a project that is located at a specific location and does address a local community or something, but that is an online project that provides resources. Basically, for everyone who uh, who wants to relate to this discourse of care. Yes, yeah, so uh, I think another aspect which is really quite interesting, especially in relation to care, is how these are quite in different levels projects that create activist infrastructures, uh, but they're not like as almost like post tactical media where they're actually much more, have a longevity to them that's much more, they can last for five years or two years or one year. They don't necessarily, they haven't got that kind of spontaneous explosion of some works do have where they kind of have an aggression behind them, uh, which those some of those projects in tactical media are necessary. But I think there's another element to it. And I suppose some people might call that post-digital. Actually, the larger emphasis of it is, is care and infrastructure and breaking down of some of those silos that we've all become trapped within is dynamic but it's not shouting from the rooftops I think there was um, there was some interesting thinking about that what you refer to as tactical tactical media I mean a lot of the the artist activist works of the 90s were this kind of hacking hacktivist disruptive uh, sort of stuff and uh, I think it's 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 uh, it's interesting to see that a lot of this strategies have been taken over by what we would have considered our enemies or still do consider our enemies and uh, we have to acknowledge that sometimes they are much better in using them or much because they have much more resources behind you know they can uh, they can uh, they are much more effective in using them and ma manipulating in large scale disrupting in large scale so I think that has triggered some thinking about what is left for us to do what can 
can we do if this sort of disrupting, interrupting, disturbing, hacking can is no longer, you know, automatically that which is subversive in, in our sense. So, and I think um, that goes in the direction of that you're describing, you know, it's about, it's, it's maybe not so sexy and not so violent and not so, you know, to build long-term infrastructures. And the notion of education also has become very important. I think also Daphne Dragona wrote an interesting text about that when she was looking into this question and finding that a lot of artists are doing actually workshops, for example. You know, they are training people. It's about knowledge production. It's about sharing knowledge, about uh, realizing that there's different forms of knowledge and how can we unlearn the things, uh, you know, that are embedded in us, which are toxic. How can we unlearn that? How can we learn new forms of being together, of collaborating, of producing things in a different way? And this is the opposite of, of being disruptive, you know, or tactical. It's really strategic. It's a long-term effort. And, and infrastructures and spaces are needed for education and it's long processes. And that's also that's where the commons comes in and connects also in with regard to the crisis because even, you know, if, if we imagine a point where the system as we know it now crashes, you know, what, what are we going to do then? And I think in my understanding, thinking about commons and trying to practice commoning already now, I mean, that enables us to have something in place. We have skills, we know more how, because we are not taught to collaborate, we are taught to compete and, and to consume. And if this doesn't work anymore, you know, what are we going to do? So for me, this whole thinking about commons and building own infrastructures and care and education and unlearning is very much a preparation, you know, of life after capitalism, you know, if I may say. I think that's a good point to end, actually. And uh, yes, thank you very much. You're welcome. My pleasure. Well, that's it for now. Our next podcast will be on Friday, the 5th, November 2021. It's going to be a special celebrating the publication of a new book, and it's called Frankenstein Reanimated. I have been co-editing it with Yanis Kolikides, and we will have some guests featured in the publication to talk about their part in the book and their ideas on Mary Shelley and social and political context of the time and today. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please listen to the earlier ones and let others know about this one and the others. And thanks very much. Bye for now.